0: You are listening to the Wesley Seminary Podcast out of Wesley Seminary at Iowa. Your host today is Dr. Aaron Perry, Assistant Professor of Pastoral Care. We are said to be living in an age that is post-truth. And one of the ways that this comes out most clearly is with moral truth claims or moral ideas. We say that our morality is grounded in our story, in our tradition, in our culture, But is there a way to think about moral truth claims or morality that supersedes all those things, doesn't do away with them, but supersedes them to say that there is such a thing as moral truth? Joining us today is Jerry Walls. Jerry is a professor of philosophy and scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University. He is among my professors and I count him as a friend as well. Welcome, Jerry. Thank you, Aaron. Good to be here. Now you write this, where we're, I have uh, before me, I have God and Cosmos, Moral Truth and Human Meaning, which you co-wrote with David Baggett, published by Oxford Press, and right at the introduction, you write this, the notion of moral truth today strikes many people, not most, but many of the time, and a great many, some of the time, as off-putting. Moral truth claims can seem dogmatic, judgmental, abrasive, pious, presumptuous. Sometimes they are even connected with and dispensed with superstition, and other times with imperialism and imposition. You say that moralistic is one of the worst terms of, disappro- of disapprobation and derogation nowadays. You go down and then you write this. Uh, you and Baggett say, We could not disagree more or demur with more adamancy. Now, I'm, I'm wondering what an adamant demural from Jerry Walls looks like.
1: <laughs> so, so how well, you- I would have to say, uh, so first of all, I, I do think there's truth, unlike the, rel- the, the, the relativists of today who don't think anything is true other than different people's perspectives. So I'm very much a, a strong believer in truth, uh, you know, so if you believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, if you believe God is truth, you know, let God be true, all men be liars. You got a really strong reason right there to start with believing in truth. Um, So that's that's point A. Uh, That's the first fundamental division between those who think there is objective truth and those who think there is not. And then the question is whether whether morality represents such truth or not. And um, obviously, Baggett and I in this book and the other one we wrote, uh, Good God, the uh, Theistic Foundations of Morality, we argue that there is objective moral truth, and that it's extremely important.
0: Now, one of the things that uh, conversations often deteriorate into is somebody who would not have uh, a theistic foundation, somebody who would not be a theist, maybe they're agnostic, maybe they're about atheist, and they would still say, but I'm still a good person, right? They, I still, I still believe in morality. Right, they they wouldn't they wouldn't disavow it altogether, but they would say they're still a moral person. What is it? What does it mean for a person who would not share theistic foundations? Uh, how might you speak to a person who still shares a sense of morality with you?
1: Well, that's actually one of the uh, the um, strategic um, points of, of of argument in our book. There are those who argue that atheists can't have any recognition of moral truth. They have no reason to be moral. Um you know uh that 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 given an atheistic worldview there is no difference between right and wrong things like that, and we want to, we want to disagree with that, so you know there's a there's a famous way of presenting the moral argument that goes like this: if God does not exist, objective moral truth does not exist, objective moral truth does exist, therefore God exists, and uh, we think that is a valid argument that both premises are true, but it's certainly a, 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 an argument that a lot of people who uh, who are skeptics, atheists, naturalists would find unconvincing, simply because they don't think the first premise is convincing or or obviously true. The premise that says if God does not exist, objective moral truth does not exist, and so lots of atheists would say, "Well, no, we we believe in objective moral truth. We think there's such a thing as right and wrong." No. Uh, and we're moral, and and we're committed to living moral lives. So you don't need God in order to in order to believe in this, and even to practice it. So here's the, here's the point: um, uh, if God exists, which of course we believe He does, and He created this world, which of course we believe He did, then it is God's world. It is uh, you know um, uh, a world that is structured by God, and uh, He's built all the truth into it that we discern. And he's created these people in his image. So these people, even if they don't recognize God, the fact of the matter is they are creatures made in in the image of God and they live in God's world. And so they're capable of discerning a lot of moral truth, even if they don't acknowledge God. So someone like Aristotle, you know, who wrote hundreds of years ago, uh, still lots of people today, including Christians, look to Aristotelian uh, ways of thinking about ethics is giving us a lot of moral truth, and of course, Saint Thomas Aquinas synthesized uh aristotle with with christian with Christian ethics. so the point of the matter is uh this is god 's world we are made in the image of god and and you can look at a human being and say there's something beautiful about that you you don 't have to be a christian to to be able to recognize that a baby is a marvelous, wonderful thing. And should be cared for, protected. There are right ways of treating people, wrong ways of treating people, and so on. So, so the question that Bagan and I are, are, are pursuing in this book is: so, granted, we both can see this. What is the best explanation for it? So, so we, we don't try to press the atheist and say, well, you don't, you can't recognize any moral truth at all. If you don't believe in God, you know, you you, you don't have any reason to be moral. You can't possibly, you know, be moral in, in, in any fashion uh, without God. Uh, we, we think that's a wrong way to go. We want to recognize, yeah, there's truth that we can all discern. Now we we would argue that atheism comes up short in explaining it fully, but they can still go a considerable way in seeing moral truth, making some sense of it. Again, because this is God's world, they are made in the image of God, whether they acknowledge that or not.
0: So let's delve a little bit further into uh, the sense of moral obligation. You talked about um, the sense of wonder that we get at the birth of a of a baby and this sense of obligation that we have to treat to treat a baby in a certain way. There's a certain way to treat a baby. There's a certain way not not to treat a baby. And the, the obligation that is widely shared, right, across across all cultures right. um, is evidence right. for God. Um, and there's a certain existential cash value to that. There's such a certain existential value to it that, that people feel that in their gut. They feel it in their bones that there's a right thing to do. Um, famously, uh, in the in the chapter on moral obligation, you talk about how uh, the famous philosopher Alvin Plantinga lists that as his uh, as the most compelling and persuasive, the best argument for God's existence. Uh, we've just talked on people sensing that sense of obligation in their bones, in their gut, right? It's just it's just in them. Why else do you think that the moral the sense of moral obligation is such a a powerful evidence to God's existence?
1: Yeah, and and the- the question then, again, comes back to this. How do you ultimately account for this conviction we have of right and wrong? Now, you know, there there are evolutionary atheists, uh, naturalistic, uh, you know, uh, theorists who, who say, well, look, we can explain why people have feelings of moral obligation. We can explain why they, you know, they have very, very strong convictions because all of these kind of beliefs have proved to be evolutionarily valuable and useful so if we didn't have a strong feeling of caring for babies you know it, it wouldn't be too too conducive to survival right so 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 the question then ultimately comes down to this um, are we obligated it's one thing to say we 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 have strong feelings of obligation we perceive certain obligations but the ultimate question is why and so suppose someone says well look i i don't really want to be moral now there are lots of people like that increasingly today asking the question why should I be moral uh you know, and certainly why should I go with traditional morality uh and things like that and and so and so lots of lots of naturalists are prepared to say, yeah, these are odd kind of facts, so, I mean the idea that there's a way we ought to behave that there' are a way we are obligated that we are accountable to behave, and again, what does ultimately explain that accountability right. uh again is it is it simply Legal accountability, uh, we're accountable to, to the law, uh, we're accountable to other people. Uh, uh, are, are there some kind of abstract moral truths, you know, that you can just see and you're you are obligated to, to follow the truth or you, you, you're obligated to follow the good, you're obligated to follow justice? So, so, so Plato had these ideas of, of these just kind of self-evident eternal forms, truth, beauty, goodness, things like that. And lots of lots of secular, lots of secular uh, uh, naturalists, you know, hold to these kind of Platonic ideals. Now, that makes a certain amount of sense, but the question ultimately comes down to: so, are we really just accountable to an ideal, an abstract truth, a Platonic idea, something like that? So, we would argue that 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 the deepest source of obligation resides in personhood. So, if ultimate reality is a person a person who is perfectly good, perfectly loving, all-powerful, etc., that grounds a sense of obligation. And here's, a, you know, again, one of the important points about obligation is this. You can't flout it. You can't flout obligation, okay, in in the ultimate sense of the word. And it's hard, again, for naturalists to say, well, this is true, because, you know, if you're really clever, if you're really strong, if you're really uh, savvy uh, and, and have enough going for you, you might be able to flout morality and get away with it, at least in the short term. But again, if God exists, we are ultimately accountable to God. We cannot flout it. Obligation is deeply rooted. In fact, it's as deeply rooted as it can possibly be in the character of a person who is all-powerful, all-knowing, perfectly good, perfectly loving, and who has the will and the ability to, to hold all of us accountable. So again, Feelings of obligation are one thing; uh, a strong conviction about obligation are one thing. Actual, genuine, inescapable obligation is another, and it's really hard to account for that deeper sense of obligation on all naturalistic terms.
0: Famously, C.S. Lewis talked about uh, the Tao, right? The, this shape, the moral shape of the of the universe. Um, and you and Baggett start to talk about how. We we must conform, right? We we are we bend to this moral shape and this form of the universe simply uh, simply by fact, right? We live we live morally in the world, even if we don't, even if we might not think that that the world is moral, right? We live morally in the world. It is we are we are bent to living in that way. Um, There's a there's a phrase that says every a person might be a, a relativist until you scratch their they're brand new Mercedes with a key, right? And then suddenly, suddenly there's, <laughs> yeah. suddenly there's something wrong, right? Something, something wrong.
1: Relativism seems to go out the window at certain key opportunities and 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 historical moments. So nine eleven, you know, uh, a lot of people that were were relatives, I keep stumbling over that word today for some reason. Uh, they they threw the relativism out the window at nine eleven, and so those kinds of
0: experiences, yes, do open people's eyes, and they go, wow uh I, this is just evil anyway go ahead well let me let me bring this this idea down into pastoral ministry now one of the one of the benefits of serving as a as a professor and and uh, having had you as a professor as a student is helping pastors and ministers to think a little bit more objectively rather than than right in the heat of ministry to to think a little bit more objectively so that their action in so their ministry in action can be hopefully more fruitful but certainly more consistent and i 'm and I'm thinking of the person who comes to the pastor under a sense of conviction right they, they are they are living a way in the world that is not right. They are they're living a way in the world that is that is not right. And sometimes people come to the pastor for a sense of absolution that that it's okay to continue living in this way that's not right for, you know, reasons x y and z. They want to see, they want the pastor to kind of say that, "Oh, it's really understandable." And other times they come to the pastor really in a sense of contrition and remorse to ask for help out of this way of the world. So let's say we've got pastor listening in and they and they they say you know what? I'm 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 taken with the argument. It helps me defend and give give uh, rational thinking to why I believe God exists. But how does m- this moral thinking help me with the person who comes to my office and is contrite and repentant? How does how does thinking clearly morally help me give them good pastoral guidance?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, again, the, there's there's false guilt and there's true guilt. Um, and as and, uh, like you like you said, some people think their their job is to uh, help people not feel guilty. And if the guilt is false, then that is uh, indeed what is called for. But the question is, are there times where we should feel guilty, where uh, where we should indeed experience deep repentance? And the question is again, ultimately, why is this the case? And the deepest explanation is 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 not simply because you have offended a moral principle. It is not because you have, uh, you have violated some kind of a platonic uh, abstraction called justice or something like that. Anytime we're ultimately sinful, as David you know, recognized against you and you only have I sinned, O oh Lord, ultimately this, this sense of failure comes down to failing a relationship, failing to love as we are called to love, failing to, to honor God as we are called to honor God and failing to honor people made in his image as we're called to to honor and, and, and respect those people. So if morality is deeply rooted in this kind of ultimate reality, ultimate relationship, and it's ultimately a relational failure, then indeed uh, the contrition is appropriate. And the beautiful thing about it is this, the God who, who calls us to contrition doesn't just want to beat us down. He doesn't just want to humiliate us because uh, he ultimately wants to forgive, heal, and redeem us. So that's the great thing about the Christian view of morality. Is it's not just this stern legalistic necessity, some abstract principles, again, or moral laws. It's a person, but it's a person who is loving. It, it, is, a, it is a God of holy love. And and uh, the beautiful thing about uh, embracing repentance is we're embracing the truth about God. We're embracing the truth about ourselves, and that is what heals us and 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 enables us to be what God wants us to be, and uh, what uh, leads to our own true fulfillment and happiness.
0: You have a great uh, a great concluding line to the book. That I just want to share that that piggybacks on what you've just said. The the line goes like this. It says we have not tired of insisting that the deepest truths about reality are discerned, not through the cosmos alone, but rather through the nature and will of the good God, who is its ultimate source, final end, and relentless lover. That there's there's a sense that uh moral thinking is is inherently formational, right? It's not it's not simply stuck in the head. It it, it lives out through our, our hands and feet, our mouths, our uh, our ears, right? How we, how we converse, how we act, how we treat other people. And that we have to keep in mind this relational capacity, this relational, uh, context of morality in order to, to see its, its true end, which is God, right? There's a sense that, that morality is, comes from God and ultimately is leading us back to God. This kind of, this kind of cyclical, uh, dance that morality can bring us into when we're thinking deeply about it, when we're attempting to align our lives and our practical lives with our, our reflective lives, right? Our, our practical life with our with our thought life. Whenever there's alignment, we see this this consistency that's that's drawing us into a relationship with God.
1: Yeah, I, absolutely. And, and that that passage you quoted at the beginning. You know, some people see morality as you know moralistic, legalistic. The, the worst thing you can you can talk about. You know, one of the worst kind of uh, of insult you can give is someone is being moralistic in this kind of a thing. And, and again, what this fails to see is that morality is God's rules, the, the, the rules of a loving God, the direction of a loving God that he gives us precisely because he knows us. He knows how we're built. He knows uh, what helps us to function and to thrive in the way that brings out uh, the, the best in us and that brings out our own true fulfillment uh, and satisfaction. So so understanding morality in that way that it's a gift of God that reflects the character of God that ultimately reflects this ultimate loving relationality. So if God is this God of, of love, this eternal relationship of love between the persons of the Trinity, and this eternal relationship of love is one of joy and delight, um, morality ultimately is about helping us to conform to that God, to his will, to his nature, so that we can share in his love and delight. And, um, Seeing it in those terms can just completely recast uh, uh h- how, how we see morality and how we see the whole notion even of, of moral obligation.
0: Joining us today is Dr. Jerry Walls. He is co author along with David Baggett of God and Cosmos, Moral Truth and Human Meaning, uh, and personal friend as well. So, Jerry, let me let me maybe move towards concluding with by opening a really big question. Um and that's okay. Not- that that that's this. You know, I thought
1: the ones. I thought you already had given some pretty big
0: questions. So so this one's really big. Oh, this this is the biggest. This this is this is the big one. <laughs> okay. It, okay. This is the whole thing. Is you know you and I have just been discussing the the moral or the relational aspect of morality, and you've described God giving us these rules, this way of living because He knows how we're built. And let's say a, a person. Uh, just says i'm not buying it and i'm not buying it because the morality that we see from god in scripture just doesn't yield that kind of picture right maybe they're and and you know i might say they're they're being selective in what in what stories they might be saying or what stories they might be picking and things like that and and i might want to give them some cultural context to to some of the the actions that god commanded um, we often think specifically of the Old Testament, but there are, there are troubling stories in the New Testament as well, like Ananias and Sapphira and, and even some of the, the judgment that comes through, uh, through Christ in, in the book of Revelation. How do, you, how do you try to interact with people who say, yeah, that, that sounds like a good idea, but the fact is I, I've read the Bible and uh, I'm, just, I'm not buying that God is that kind of good God. That that he does not come across in that moral way. They might even say that their morality is higher or better than the morality of God.
1: <laughs> yeah, thanks, Aaron. Uh, that 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 is a tough one. So I, I would start by telling them to read uh, Paul Copan's book Has God, a Moral Monster, just just for a start, uh, and looking at some of those difficult passages uh, in the Old Testament. But the question uh, does come down to this. What is God's ultimate, highest, clearest revelation? And and we believe God's ultimate, highest revelation is in Jesus Christ. And so in his life, death, and resurrection, we see the heart of God. So we see as Jesus dies on the cross, you know, someone who says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. We see a man who, when the adulteress is brought to him, and, and, um, you know, all the people are are lining up to stone her. You know, he says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. So, wrath is always, uh, rightly understood God's anger at things that are destructive. So, it's just like, you know, parents who get upset with their children when they engage in certain kinds of behavior. If it's truly out of love, the reason you're upset is because, you know, this behavior is hurting your child. They're engaging in something that is destructive. So, God's wrath is precisely motivated ultimately by his love and wanting the truth to come home to us. So, so he, he punishes, uh, ultimately, uh, with, with the hope of bringing truth home to us so we will repent, so we will uh, 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 embrace reality um, and, and embrace our own, our own happiness and, and true flourishing and fulfillment. So God is a God of love. God also gives us a lot of freedom. And uh, the unfortunate thing is we can, with our freedom, uh, choose to reject God. We can choose to reject his love. I've written a lot about hell and how the very idea of hell actually is premised upon a God of love. It's precisely because God is love that we can choose not to love because he invites us to a loving relationship, and love must be freely given. So, so what, what you see is God's anger, his frustration when people misuse their freedom, reject their own happiness, um, and embrace kind of destructive, uh, self-destructive kind of actions and actions that are destructive of other people. So the wrath of God has to be understood in that light uh, that it's ultimately motivated by love, and um, uh, if some people choose ultimately not to embrace love, then they do experience God's wrath.
0: Now, I thank thank you for engaging engaging the question, and here's part of the reason why I ask it as we as we move to wrapping things up is uh, as you as you know and as as you have trained your own students, pastoral ministry is is that role that often calls one to shift from philosopher to theologian to biblical scholar and and moving in and out of all of these things because I'm out of all those roles, yeah, yeah, so it's a big job. It, it is, and and so often, uh and then and then kind of kind of surrounding all those things is is the role of of psychologist, right? You're you're trying to discern the person in front of you. Either in a one-on-one or the congregation before you, as you're trying to preach, the class in front of you, as you're teaching and engaging in discussion, and so many times these really hard questions emerge, uh, not because of uh, it's tickling a person's brain in the moment, but because that's where they've that's where that's something scratching in their heart, right? There's something beneath the surface, or something else going on in life where where this is emerging. Right. And and so often we have to figure out okay where is this coming from and then and then how do I address it philosophically theologically biblically right. and and engaging all of these and I think that I think that especially the concept of the field of, of morality is one of those places that just takes such wisdom on behalf of pastors to know uh, what kind of question am I being asked and what's the most fruitful and faithful way to go about answering it in a way that that models right. that models relationship as well that we're not simply we are addressing the the hard and the the thoughtful questions of rationality that people have rational questions that people have but we're doing so in a way that reflects their relational god who has called us into this service and that that's that's so challenging so thank you for thank you for modeling that in in the the last answer you gave
1: well, thank you. Thank you. And, 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 you're absolutely right. I mean, diagnosing exactly, you know, where the itch really is, uh, is really important. Are they asking a philosophical question? Are they, are they putting a philosophical question forward as a mask to hide some kind of an emotional hurt? Um, you know, is, is it a biblical question they're asking, you know, so, so diagnosing the question is really important to, to give, to give an answer that's going to hit the target. And, uh, you're right that, um, you know, pastors got to have a lot of sensitivity and skill to to, to think theologically, uh, to think biblically, um, and sometimes uh, sometimes to think philosophically as well.
0: Joining us today has been Dr. Jerry Walls. Uh, Jerry is co-author of the Book God and Cosmos, professor at Houston Baptist University, and former professor of mine as well. So, thank you so much, Jerry, for joining us today on the podcast. My pleasure. We hope that this podcast has been helpful to you listeners and is a resource to you as you continue to think about some of the hard questions of moral truth that we, uh, that we all face in ministries of various kinds. We hope that it's been an encouragement to you and a resource as you continue on in your pastoral ministry. So thanks so much for tuning in and have a great day. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the name Wesley Seminary.